a podcast brought to you by Energy Live News. It's Friday. Oh, you know where it is. Hello, it's Short Fuse, blah, blah, blah. I hope you are well. hope you've had a good week. You've recovered. Although some people still did have a bit of snow in the north. Sorry for you up there. In London, we've enjoyed ourselves. Right, we've got a packed show for you today, but let's start off with our top story. And it's this one. Bills, bills, more bills and more woe for suppliers. So what happened at the beginning of the week is Ofgem said that suppliers who have been back billing micro businesses, that's small businesses like us and householders, you and me, everyone else out there. If you've been back billing for power that's been used uh, more than 12 months ago, that has got to stop. So uh, that will happen in May for uh, domestic customers and in November for micro businesses. Why? Well, what was happening was people were getting these bills, which were sometimes thousands of pounds, uh, suddenly laid on their doorstep. You had to pay it. The regulator says that's unfair. I actually agree with them for that for, for once. And, you know, they said that has got to stop. The exemption would be, obviously, if you were, say, a customer and you stopped um, a supply company reading your meter or you were not there, you stopped saying, to, well, I can't get in, you blah, 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 blah. Then if you have that situation and they send you a bill because you haven't let them in, then that will still stay. But for most people, this will get away from the whole issue of erroneous meter readings and being left with a big bill. So that's good. So that happened in the beginning. And then this happened towards the end of the week, which was the dreaded price cap that most suppliers are hating and loathing. And Sanjaga a few weeks ago said they were losing jobs because of this, blah, blah, blah. It is happening. Ofgem has said that they will attempt to get that price cap through by the end of 2018. That's right. By the end of this year, provided the legislation goes through Parliament, that will happen. And that will offer protection for, they estimate, 12 million households. But of course, there's a lot of resistance from the suppliers because they think that this will actually put bills up because they'll have to counteract this. So we'll watch that space. So not a great week so far for the suppliers. Maybe it'll get better in the next four hours. Okay, cybersecurity. So this has been obviously an issue we've covered many a time on Short Fuse and across Energy Live News. And what happened this week was that we found that um, an analysis was done saying that cybersecurity was the top tech that is going to be adopted by energy companies. So forget other bits that we might do in terms of kind of EVs, grid to vehicle, all of that. The real thing that's going to be affecting uh, energy companies will be cyber security. In fact, 66% said that would be the thing they have to improve the most. And then later in the week, we had a survey uh, which showed that right now, uh, they surveyed 1,300 top energy executives from across the world, that this was their most taxing issue, how they protect their utilities from the attacks on cybersecurity. And what was interesting is that obviously as we're doing more digitization, digitization, whichever way you want to call it, of our infrastructure, so putting smart meters in, putting chips into devices, this dreaded term, the internet of, internet of things, that means that obviously those devices are suddenly open. They're on a network. And what they're not talking about is just, you know, massive attacks. Let's talk about, you know, Russia's in the news, a big cyber attack from a state like that. They can mean something as simple as Bitcoin mining. So we heard this week that Bitcoin mining means that people are trying to use uh, machines 
to network and get as much power to mine these coins. And that could mean they're using the machines and laptops in various utilities. And so this concern about cybersecurity, don't think of it as just sort of terrorist attacks. Think of it as other things coming on. I think that is really quite an interesting problem. And finally in this section, uh, our old friend, olive oil. Yes, not olive oil itself, but oil. Uh, oil is flowing. It's going to keep on flowing. In fact, uh, a report from the IEA has said that they reckon by 2020, we've got plenty of oil for 2020 from US, from Brazil, from Canada and Norway. Unusual states, you'd think, for giving us the oil business. So as the OPEC countries of the Middle East probably starts to taper down, you know, you see there's lots of innovation going on in the Middle East in terms of things like, you know, solar and uh, grid technologies. What the IEA has found is that uh, particularly the US is producing barrels and barrels of the stuff. In fact, the US alone, they predict, could cover 80% of global oil demand uh, for the next three years. No wonder Mr. Trump is doing his little Trumpity Trump when it comes to trade wars, because he thinks he's got a lot of the bases covered on that. Well, what are your thoughts on that? More stories uh, coming up later with the reporters. But now it's time for this week's Viewpoint. So this week's Viewpoint is all about how clean we should be, how our cities, how our towns, where we live. And there's an organisation that's been behind it called UK100. What they've launched this week is very interesting. It's a map. So it's, uh, this one is particularly of Oxford. And as you navigate through this map, it shows you all the different things that Oxford is doing in terms of cleaning up the place. So that's everything from where you might find um, EVs, what they're doing in terms of how much energy they're using, what they're doing in their transport links. And the idea is to inspire the public to get involved, not just them, but also businesses, to create this idea that actually, you know what, the environment matters. Why do it though? Who is involved? What will this all mean? And at the end of the day, what is the point of it? Because we all know there are big issues around the environment. And do we really have the public getting involved except a small minority? Well, joining me now is the director of this, Polly Billington. Polly, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, UK 100. Well, I'll talk about that in, in a second and I'll get you to explain to it. But firstly, the idea of this map. Is this mm -hmm. simply about getting better engagement for the public? Because it is quite cool. We've had a play on it. Um, why, why do the map this way? Well, what we wanted to do was give people the opportunity to see what is happening in their own communities in terms of the, the transition to 100% clean energy. People have made the commitment. And in fact, a lot of it is becoming a bit of the new normal. So although that's really good because it means that we've got used to it, it does mean that sometimes it's a bit invisible. Um, so we needed to be able to make sure that there was somewhere where you could actually put your clean energy actions on the map and start seeing that whatever you're doing is part of a bigger whole. We particularly wanted to get involved, get the local councils involved because our network is a network of local leaders. And we wanted to make sure that what they were doing, the decisions that they make were the right ones to be able to shift us to 100% clean. That's why the people are in our network in the first place. But we wanted their communities to understand that this was a collective effort, that the leaders are doing their bit by making decisions about having charging points in, in shopping centres and having having solar panels on, on um, 
bus shelters, but that also the community can become part of that too by showing what they're doing so that it's a collective effort. And like you say, we've also got the businesses there. So, for example, in Oxford, you've got the big shopping centre, which is owned by Land Securities. They're committed to 100% clean energy um, themselves, 100% uh, renewable electricity themselves on their own estate. So they are contributing to it. When people say that it's too difficult or that um, what my little effort can't be, isn't enough, mm. you can actually see it's not too difficult. Lots of people are doing it and you're part of a bigger movement. When you, when, when, let's talk about the UK 100. How did it come about uh, and what does the 100 mean, if you can explain to the audience? The 100 stands for 100% clean energy. So we've now got 85 local authorities who've committed to shifting to 100% clean energy by 2050. Now, that's the, one of the reasons why we made that commitment is because by 2050, we need to be effectively a zero carbon um, society altogether, economy altogether in, in the UK. Um, and we're not going to be able to do that if the decisions aren't made correctly at local level. There's a lot of important decisions that need to be made at national level and it's fantastic that the government made the decision to phase out coal and that we're getting more offshore wind farms on, 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 uh, on stream, for example. But a lot of those decisions will be made locally. It's whether you're going to have renewable energy being generated locally. It's what you do about your transport system. System. Are you encouraging the buses? Are you making sure that the buses you have are the cleanest possible? Are you making sure that you uh, that you have a circular economy, which is obviously the new fashionable word for what we used to call recycling? Mm -hmm. Are you making sure that your homes are as absolutely efficient as possible so that you're not using unnecessary electricity and therefore making it easier for us to be able to generate the electricity that we that we need? Now, loads of those decisions are made by local authorities. They're the ones who have control over transport. They're the ones who establish housing standards. They're the ones who've got control over planning. Those are the people who can make decisions about where and how they put energy efficiency measures into the homes that they own. So they've well, actually got lots of Believers. Just to stop you there, though, at the end of the day, though, OK, they get their money from the council tax and they get money from government. And aren't these decisions really the ones that the government has to lead on? Because government, as you and I know, you're, you're a former journalist, the same as me. You know, you know that governments can basically decide what uh, can be raised locally. And that will have an effect on how much investment a local council can make. Well, believe me, I'm dealing with 85 local authorities who are strapped, so strapped for cash, they don't even know whether they're going to be able to keep their meals on wheels going at the moment because of austerity. So I'm not asking them to spend more money. I'm asking them to spend money in a wise way. Because right. if you think about it, this is about saving money. Energy efficiency reduces your bills. Yes, you have to pay up front, but overall you will save money in the, in the long run. Generating electricity generates income. Making smart decisions now will cost you less less uh, uh, cost later, particularly when, when it comes to some of the big investments that we're talking about when it comes to energy. But you're right, a lot of these decisions are made nationally. That's mm. why we're a network which wants to put pressure on the government to make sure that national policy makes it easier for local leaders to do what they want to do. We know, for example, that for example, for, that um, uh, solar energy generation is now going to um, mean that you're going to be charged extra business rates. That doesn't make sense if you're encouraging yeah. 
businesses to do the right thing by generating energy locally. Now, local authorities can make that case. And sometimes, because they are hard-headed politicians, them saying it can be more effective and more influential than if it's the, the normal sort of green nuts, as it were. <laughs> Let's and I put myself what... in the category of being a green nut. Yeah, you're not a green nut. Okay, fair enough. But let's take an example that we've seen a lot of and we've covered on Energy Live News, uh, local energy companies run by councils. You've yeah. heard of Robin Hood Energy, uh, Angel Energy in Islington. Now, these ideas seem very good. They seem like, uh, you know, here's the community trying to do something and councils taking a lead to try and ease the burden for, for people who are paying bills. But the criticism from the sector is they don't have the skills. Uh, they're also buying when the flat market's been pretty flat. What will they do in terms of volatility? How do you hedge against all this stuff? Aren't some of these decisions beyond the scope of local government? Well, um, I'd just like to refer you to the fact that before we had nationalised industries, which actually only, the nationalised utilities, which actually only happened after the Second World War, um, local energy companies were completely normal. It was actually the place where electricity started being generated because local municipal leaders decided that electricity was the kind of thing that they wanted for their local communities. And when we were making town gas, town gas used to be made locally and stored locally. So now it might not be within our lifetimes, but it is within some living memory. And we need to remember that what we're looking at here is some options on supplier system, uh, supplier companies, which is what you're yeah. talking about with Robin Hood and so forth, um, and Angel um, uh, Electricity in Islington. But the most interesting thing is generating the electricity because right. that's where you have the opportunity to generate an income. Personally, I think that managing consumers is a really, really tough call. And we know how difficult it is for anybody to read and understand their bill. And I wouldn't want, uh, you know, I think there is, a, we can understand why, bearing in mind people already have, local authorities already have the challenges of managing council tax. They might not want to take on the responsibilities sure. of dealing with consumers and their bills, but there is a case for them generating electricity and making that an income stream from their own communities. Particularly particularly in, in a time where the amount of money that is going to come from, um, from central government to local government is not necessarily going to increase. We should be seeing this as, as an entrepreneurial opportunity for local authorities. Two things I want to ask you about. Um, you talk about it's great we're getting the local leaders behind. You need the local community. And, and, and as I referenced the map earlier, that's a good way of engaging it. What are you hoping with your group that will happen to Local businesses, let's talk about them. The public, fair enough, we can all say, I want to go green, I want to recycle a bit. But if you can get local businesses in a town or a village in a city getting involved, what, what's your message to them as part of this uh, group of getting the 100 out there? Well, I think local businesses can quite often see that benefit to this when they see the, um, what it means in terms of how attractive they are to their own customers. Because people are increasingly making decisions, not just on price, but on how um, they feel about the products that they buy and how they feel about the experience of buying them. Now, if you know that you are walking to your local shop, buying stuff from people who actually think and care about the environment and are making sensible business choices about how they spend their own money, wouldn't you prefer to be using that, that 
that kind of business than another mm. one. The reality is the small businesses, if they're not careful, are going to get left behind because it's the big businesses that are already shifting on this. That's why on our business, on our, on our local power map in Oxford, what are the businesses that we featured? We featured Marks and Spencer yes. and, and big Westgate, Westgate shopping centre because they are the ones who've already made the commitment to 100% renewable electricity. But they also have and the money, Polly, don't they? They've yes. got the money and they've got that expertise. They it's hard do. for a small business to say, oh, I'm going to stick solar panels up or I'm going to try and clean my supply chain because they're just trying well, to keep in business. That's right. But what they can do is they can make a switch to a renewable energy supplier. And now that normally means that you will you will save money um, if you do that, because most people are still on standard tariff rates. And if you're on standard tariff rates, switching to a 100% renewable energy um, supplier is likely to save you money. That's a straightforward thing you can do. And then thinking about how you how you uh, deal with your freight, how you encourage your customers to do the right thing. So that what you do about parking, are you one of those businesses that spends all of your time saying, oh, no, we need more parking? Or are you the one that says, actually, we need to have bike hire at the end of our street we need to have electric car charging points in our mm. in our shopping area in fact what i'm going to do is make sure that we collectively do deliveries in our in our shopping streets so that we are saving on carbon rather than spending more uh, expending more carbon there is really smart and savvy things and most of the time for small businesses yeah. saving money will end up saving carbon my last question to you is this sounds great and and i know that you've got a lot of councils already but it sounds a bit liberal woolly elite you know mung bean chewing guardian readers in in the metropolis if you're in uh, hard-hit councils in the north uh, can this apply to you? Do, you do you do you take that criticism about it seems to be it's great for the liberal wealthy they can afford to do this well i'll just put one fact to you people will say and in fact this happened in a round table i was in yesterday they assumed that the cities that were going to be most advanced yep. on green stuff were going to be places like um brighton oxford, oxford yeah so forth, right? Now, Oxford is pretty advanced on this, but I'll, I'll ask you the question, where is most renewable energy, where are the local authorities that generate the most renewable energy in this country? It's Grimsby, Doncaster and Warrington. Why? Because they've already developed supply chains mm. there. There are jobs there. And there, the hard-headed decisions that are made by people about, well, actually, I'm now in an industry which gives me a secure job. You're much less likely to think that this is all mung bean chewing hackney nonsense <laughs> and start thinking, actually, this is, a, this is the way that I make my money. And if I make my money and I, I get a secure job out of it, I'm much more open to the idea that this is a sensible decision for me and my family. So those are, now, nobody would think that, that Grimsby and Doncaster and Warrington are full of people yeah. who spend all of their time worrying about the polar ice caps. What they are doing is worrying about their homes and their families and they're making the right decision. This is the most sensible decision anybody can make for their families now and in the future. And that's why the leaders have made the, made the, the, uh, have made the commitment they have done. We aren't just full of, um, of uh, metropolitan boroughs. We've got County Durham, we've got Lancashire, we're gonna hope we, we are, we've got Bassett Law, we've got Derby. These right. are sensible, sensible hard-headed yeah. municipal leaders who know they're making the right decision for their communities. Great one, Lo lovely to hear that. My last thing is, if people want, watching this and businesses want to get involved, how do they do it? Well, the best thing to do is to email info at uk100.org. And if you're particularly interested in your community um, uh, becoming part of the, the mapping project, because we're going to pilot 
We're piloting the, the uh, local power map in Oxford and Oxfordshire, but we want to try it out in different communities because, as you say, every community is different. We want to see what already is happening in different parts of the country. If you would like to be part of, of mapping the, the, transfer, tra the transition to clean energy in your community, get in touch with us either on that email, info at uk100.org, or on localpowermap at uk100.org. And then we will be able to get back in touch with you and see if we can develop a pilot map just in your area with all of the clean energy activities that are going on, including all of those businesses that are doing the right thing. Polly, thanks for your time. We'll keep an eye on this and I'll probably get my reporters to be in touch and we'll try and cover some of this. Thank you very no, much for speaking to us. Thank you. Polly there, and you know, I think that is a very interesting whole scheme there. Go onto that site, have a look at it. It does show you the level of engagement you can get, and I think it's well worth getting involved if you're a small business, and obviously for the councils that are out there. What do you think then? Email us, use the normal ones, use the hashtags, do anything, as long as you stop Kevin Corcoran sending any messages in, that'll be good. And now, apparently I have a new reporter for this week's Hack Hatch. How are you, Jonathan? Yeah, I'm fantastic. Have you had, have you had a busy week? Uh, yeah. Busy. Mainly Four on the trains, busy, not yeah, turning yeah. up to jobs? Uh, Leaving poor Rob yeah. to go and film at desperate need, pre-having to step in and do your job? Yeah, I think, I think they enjoyed it though. Mm, as if. All right, tell me more. What's been going on? Uh, so the main story I wanted to talk about this week was basically how there's a consultancy called Unomia, and they say that the UK has overestimated uh, its success on recycling plastic. <laughs> uh, so yeah, basically they say that they look at 2015 in this report specifically. Yeah, but they say they think it applies to every year in the last 20 years. Uh, but in Blimey. 2015, the UK said we'd recycled 39% of our plastic. And they think that could actually be as low as 23% of our plastic that we recycle. How? So what, massive what, difference. what have we got wrong then? Uh, they say that the actual weight reported uh, tonnage-wise of recycled plastic was correct. But we actually just produced much more plastic waste than we initially thought. Uh, so, yeah. This plastic thing is everywhere now, isn't it? I mean, you can't go one day without a plastic story. All thanks to that god that is David Attenborough yeah. and his little little uh, tortoise and turtle. Yeah, he even thing. got the Queen involved. So. He got the Queen involved. But yeah. also, you know, I think we had the story this week, in fact, today about the coffee cups and yeah. not putting the money on it, but saying, bring your own stuff. Yeah, and, and Aldi yesterday <coughs> saying they're phasing up plastic. But this, is this a... Uh, basically a cock-up in terms of sort of auditing, is that what they're trying to say? Yeah, just, um, so I guess the way to fix this, according to Unomia, would be for the government to uh, put into place better regulations on how plastic waste is measured. Yeah, we're very good at recycling plastic in this office, aren't we? Well, a, a lot of plastic in the UK, actually, in this report, they say gets exported, so we knew that already, it yeah, gets exported to places like China uh, or India or wherever. Um, and so obviously that creates a bit of a grey area because it gets shipped abroad, but no one really knows how much is yeah, in there. And it then just gets burned. Anyway, yeah. uh, next one. Uh, <clears throat> it's about plastic in a sense as well, uh, but it's about chewing gum, uh, which they've now, they're now recycling. Uh, I by, love this. <laughs> they're hosing it off the floor and apparently chewing gum costs 150 million pounds a year uh, for the government And there's a little recycle. bin. I think we've got a picture of this bin. Yeah, there's a bin. And so that bin there is created out of recycled chewing gum. And when it gets full of recycled chewing gum, this is my favourite part, yeah. they don't empty it out. They the just chuck it. the whole bin. <laughs> they chuck the whole bin back into the recycling machine along with its contents. And then that's, made, that's used to make more bins. Hang on, that bin is made of chewing gum? The bin is made of chewing gum. 
<clears throat> How on earth do you turn chewing gum into a bin? Um, because... Here's your science question. Well, I looked it up and apparently uh, chewing gum is made of mainly plastic come f coming from oil. So it's just recyclable like any other recyclable plastic. We are eating oil yeah. every day. Fossil fuels. Nice. And finally, something for you really, I think, having seen your reversing skills. Uh, yeah, I'm a great driver, as everyone in the office knows, uh, so I won't be needing a driverless car. Uh, but the government is worried that, about the legal ramifications of when everyone does have driverless cars and they start running people over. Uh, so it has commissioned a review, basically, for the next three years, where they're going to look into various uh, scenarios, I guess, of whether whose fault it will be if there's a car crash. Because in some of these cars, there's no steering wheel. In some of the cars, there's, you know, you, the driver has partial inputs. And if anyone's seen iRobot's driverless cars put into a whole load of moral implications. And moral questions. implications are high. Yeah. But also the other thought about these driverless cars is that, you know, they're, they're going to have different personalities. Like Alexa's creepy laugh yep. this week. So imagine, imagine your car just laughs <laughs> and goes, Johnny, you're not coming home tonight. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, anyway, so is that it, really? Uh, yes, and as always, you can email us at storiesenergylivenews.com. Uh, that's if you have any complaints, not that you will, or if you have any good stories that you think we should write and uh, go investigate in more detail. And please, get in touch. I want to get him out of the office. Look, he's now bought some clothes. Yeah, I'm ready. He should be going doing stuff. Yeah. Yeah? What a joy. All right, goodbye. Bye. He's such a good boy. Uh, great stuff there. Uh, do, do send some stuff through because uh, the reporters are very keen to go out now, particularly as Johnny's bought himself that lovely suit. Right, a couple of things too before we end. So Baz Lansdrop is going to be speaking at Energy Life Future on June the 7th. He is the man that wants to take us to Mars. Here's his invitation to you. Hello, I'm Baz Lansdrop. I'm CEO and co-founder of Mars One. I'll be speaking at Energy Life Future in June in London, and I hope you will be there. I'll be speaking about Mars, about why we should go there, how we will go there, about how we will get energy on Mars. It's going to be an exciting event. Join us. So there you go. Don't miss him. He's going to do a great speech. It's going to be really, really interesting. And we have pulled together. You'll be seeing very soon the agenda. We've got a packed day for you. If you're a major energy user, we'll be talking about the future of energy, what will happen if we don't have any suppliers. We'll be looking at the whole kind of interactivity of the energy uh, system. We're going to have an EV highway. We can do a terrible version of uh, EV top gear. Don't even ask what's going to happen there. Uh, we've got lots of seminars and some really interesting universities bringing and showcasing some great stuff uh, that the young people out there working in the energy field. So don't miss that day, 7th of June. Here's the other diary dates for you uh, on the uh, 22nd of March, just oh, two weeks away now, just over. Uh, we have ELK, the Energy Live Consultants Conference. That'll be taking place at the Etihad. We know that we have got probably room for about another 20 or 30, so it's pretty packed up. We've got 200 people coming. If you are a broker or a consultant, then please let us know if you'd like to come along on that day, packed day of content for you. And that, again, is on the website. Uh, you know what's happening on June the 7th. And then at the end of June, the 28th, Telka. We've just been doing the plans for it this week. And the most important thing is we're having mini hot dogs. Yeah, boy. There you go. That made George very happy. Right. Uh, any shout outs? Yes, Kevin Corcoran. Kevin Corcoran. He says, great week for women. Great week for women. You should know about that, Kev. Oh, in the 
Literally, he said thanks for the birthday gift this week, shouldn't it? Yeah, oh, the birthday gift. That was great, wasn't it? Yeah, what was it? A vegan fish and chips you wanted? No, ain't happening. Uh, yes, so, so great week for women. How will I be treating my mum this Sunday? Well, I'll be packing her away on a little train and saying, you've done nothing for me. Get out of here. More rightly, I'll actually take her out for a nice meal, which is what you should do. And you should be nice to everyone that you know, particularly as the lady in your life is a mum, as we well know. So I hope you're making some provision for her. And Kevin, uh, how's your little leg? Because we'll be doing a little special very soon about Kevin and his state of health. I do have a photo, which I won't reveal right now. It'll be coming up in a couple of short weeks' time. And um, I hear that Manish is watching. Is that right? Yeah. Manish from M&S. How you doing, guy? Good to hear from you. Send us some stuff. Anything else? Uh, no, that's all. That's all. God, it just gets worse every time. And finally this week, something on Twitter. Now, this I thought was great. Play that video. So what has happened is uh, the, the clocks across the continent have been spookily going behind time by six minutes. They're running six minutes slow. Why is that? That's because uh, a row between Serbia and Kosovo. Let me explain. Normal clocks work with a quartz crystal. Obviously, if you plug in a clock, then you're using the electricity uh, to be the regulator. So the electricity in all of our sort of plugs and stuff has an oscillation, 50 hertz, these 50 little oscillations per second. And that's how clocks keep time because they use the constancy of that oscillation. What's happened is because we have a connected grid across Europe and because there's been a bit of a, uh, a dust up between Serbia and Kosovo, there's a amount of energy that hasn't been uh, given back to the grid. So they're having a fight about how much energy between them they've used. Because the whole grid is connected, that's led to an unbalance in the grid. And basically what happens is if consumption, i.e. we're using more than we're uh, having out there, is higher, then the frequency slows down. So because we've all been using a lot more energy because of this row between Serbia and Kosovo, the clocks have slowed down. Great story on Twitter. I think that is a cracker. So check that one out. Um, that's it for this week. Uh, do stay in touch with us. Keep watching. We've got loads of stuff happening. Don't forget the daily update uh, generally by Johnny. Looking quite smart now. He's set the, uh, the ball rolling with his uh, suit. So I'll expect that every uh, week. We'll have uh, pre next week for our uh, Hack Hutch and lots more stories to come. Have a great weekend from me and the entire Short Fuse team. Adios. A podcast brought to you by Energy Live News.